firm, Garnham Family Office Services. We protect and preserve the wealth of the world's rich and famous. But having a good lawyer is only part of the solution. My podcast, How to Keep Your Money, draws on my 30 years experience and my extensive network of professional advisors to better inform you. Subscribe to our podcast and learn from the professionals on how to keep your money. This is episode 15 of How to Keep Your Money. I'm Caroline Garnham of Garnham Family Office Services, specialist lawyers to the ultra-high net worth community. I'm joined remotely, first time because of the coronavirus, um, by Filippo Naceda, a partner with UK law firm Mishkon Durea. He is rated as a leading individual in Legal 500, which says Filippo has a tremendous reputation, a broad range of expertise. He's a major figure in coordinating cross-border European issues and injects a light-hearted approach to a complex area Welcome, Filippo, to How to Keep Your Money. You were born in Switzerland, where you learnt to speak fluent Italian, French and German, together with the regional dialects. You went to Zurich University, where you studied law and became a Swiss lawyer, and then came to London, where you went to the London School of Economics and Political Science, where you read trust law and taxation. What made you come to the UK and qualify it as a solicitor? And make your career in the UK in tax and trusts. And what do you miss about Switzerland? Uh, th- thank you very much for uh, your introduction. Very kind, um, Caroline. Uh, I was 30 when I uh, moved to the UK and I had been in private practice for three years uh, before that. And there were certain aspects of uh, the marketplace in Zurich I was not incredibly fond of. Uh, and uh, I regret to say it's uh, it, it's it's um, banking secrecy. Uh, wonderful uh, for uh, clients offshore, wonderful for um, bankers, but for lawyers, I think it meant that uh, there was not much um, input on on the structural side of things because trusts, foundations, companies they were effectively treated as as wrappers. And so if you ask, wonderful, but what happens if your your spouse dies? Who's going to deal with governance? People said, who cares? It's just a, just a thing to effectively give anonymity. And one of the things that I started to learn dealing with was this thing of trusts, which, uh, of course, as a Swiss lawyer at the time, I had no idea about. And it's, it's, uh, it, it, it may uh, make me sound a bit old, but it was before uh, Wi-Fi. Uh, we had the internet, uh, but we had dial-up. Uh, and so if you tried to look anything online, you had um, the, uh, uh, this graceful sound. And, and, and it would take 10 minutes to download a picture. So the only way really to learn about trusts was to come to the UK and, and really learn about them. The other thing was tax. I knew uh, nothing about tax because in Zurich, uh, people dealt with sort of civil law uh, and and so I came here and I, and I loved it. Uh, what I perhaps miss about Switzerland 
is a bit of organization, a bit of constitutional um, order. Uh, and I think that uh, whilst loving everything about the UK common law and, and, and English law, I think that the uh, uh, debacle of Brexit uh, has shown a lot of cracks in the uh, constitutional um, uh, edifice uh, of English law, uh, which I think is also relevant for private clients. And so I miss a bit of that, uh, but other than that, I, 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 I made my career in the UK. I love it here. Uh, people are pragmatic, are open, are international, and I think it's a uh, London will remain a preeminent place to do to do business in the private client world, notwithstanding uh, the challenges that we are facing. You are in an extremely fortunate position uh, as a Swiss lawyer and an English solicitor. You're ideally placed post-Brexit to advise on international tax and cross-border succession. Swiss law, as you've said, is a civil law jurisdiction, UK common law. Swiss law embraces the concept of the foundation and the UK trust. So they, they do much the same thing, but are very different concepts. Swiss also has forced airship, whereas the UK has testamentary freedom, not everyone understands how difficult it is to match these two very different concepts. Where do you start with such families, Filippo? Hmm. Uh, very often by following the money, uh, because <clears throat> you might be resident or domiciled, whatever it means, because of course it means something to the English lawyers, but something different to uh, the French lawyers say, yeah, domiciliere, but it's it's something different. Or domiciliato if you're Spanish, or domiciliato if you're Italian. Uh, but in the reality, if you've got a, a, an international family with assets in, uh, I don't know, the European Union, uh, then uh, if you want to deal with succession, with governance, with can I use a trust or a foundation or something in between, uh, what about matrimonial property? I do tend to look to start from the location of the assets. Uh, and if you then identify the location of the assets and then you look at jurisdictional issues, because if something goes wrong, you might have a probate court or a succession court or some kind of court dealing with it, you need to make sure that what you have created and discussed with the family will not only work in theory, but we'd also work in practice. And practical advice, I think, is what is needed. Uh, difficult to give practical advice without the theory behind it. Uh, in a way, there is this wonderful commercial of a Swiss watchmaker. In order to break the rules, you, you must first uh, master them. But if you manage to deal with the technicalities, then you need to be able to go in front of a notary, of a court, and make sure that the uh, structure withstands any stress. And that is incredibly difficult and requires a lot of um, coordination with lawyers who might superficially understand the language, that, um, uh, the uh, legal language of the uh, counterparty. But when uh, push comes to shove, you really uh, realize whether this understanding is a true understanding 
always a superficial understanding and then when you scratch under the surface you have a lot of problems. Domicile is a classic example. A trust or a foundation or equitable interest is another great area where people have differences and as you say uh, forced airship and matrimonial property. But I think that uh, sometimes uh, people focus on the differences where in reality they are not differences. So forced airship, uh, people say uh, we have testamentary freedom in the UK, not so in Europe, and that is sort of half correct and half not correct. Uh, we have in the UK an upsurge in number of claims under the 1975 Act, which effectively allows the court to go and meddle with a deceased estate and even uh, potentially go and change lifetime dispositions and trusts made by the settler by the deceased in the last six years of their uh, life. And if you look at a lot of continental European systems, you've got a similar concept. Uh, it is not automatic. Uh, it only applies if the courts are involved, i.e. their chosen action, their claims, and there are a period of uh, limitation which are you know shorter or longer depending on, depending on the country so in switzerland for example is five years meaning that if you say launch a trust and you survive five years you are fine and then you die uh, your children may not um, classically challenge the trust in euro in germany is 10 years in some countries is a bit longer so it's a lot of complexities, but I think it's a bit like a Lego. You have to sit down with your client, with the advisor, look at all the difficulties, uh, and then devise a pragmatic solution. That's where you start, a pragmatic solution. But you're not just someone who is prepared to uh, let the grass grow under your feet and accept it as it is. In 2007, you successfully lobbied the Swiss government to sign and ratify the Hague Convention on the Recognition of Trusts. Tell us a little bit about that, Filippo. It, it, it was not about the politics of recognising trusts. Um, um, it, it was more about the legalities. Uh, having, um, in a way, come out of a period of um, five years of deep immersion in, in, in trust law, uh, first at, uh, at the LSE in King's where, where I studied and then with my um, previous uh, firm. Uh, there were uh, issues that the Swiss government had recognised but not fully uh, expanded because they didn't um, have a full grasp, although they had a very good grasp. And when I teach uh, nowadays to my students, I say the way... Uh, foreign lawyers sometimes recognize the trust is, is marvelous. Um, so the Swiss government had a very good understanding of the trust concept, but when it helped to everyday life of trustees and beneficiaries, they missed a trick. And, the, and, and this was that, that um, trusts have been effectively created by the courts, <clears throat> um, uh, the, uh, um, the courts of equity. And therefore the courts are very... Uh, willing to assist trustees who uh, find themselves in a pickle. And so in most trust law countries, trustees can go to court and say, dear judge, I have a problem. 
can you please can I please ask you for directions and in extreme circumstances the trustee says too difficult for us can we please surrender our discretions and you the courts effectively decide in our place and the courts do that now the approach of courts in the uh, civil law system is very very different the law is created by someone else parliament and the courts are just there to apply the law like you know policemen but not designers of the law and therefore their job is to say whether you're right or wrong and not really to help you so i said to the swiss government look if you've got a big trust industry in switzerland which you have and you might have a family from Argentina. You might have a trust from the Bahamas. The only connection with Switzerland is the trustees and the money. Why not allow the uh, Swiss trustees to go before the Bahamanian court, get a decision and have that one enforced in Switzerland? And the Swiss government said, oh, but we can't have that. Uh, it doesn't work like that. You usually have to have someone domiciled in the jurisdiction, the claimant or the defendant, and I said, nah, under Anglo-Saxon law, the uh, proper law of the trust is a sufficient a link with the jurisdiction, and the uh, local courts are jealous of their trust and will help you, even if there is nothing in the jurisdiction uh, apart from the proper law. And so the Swiss government said, yeah, we like that, and, and, and they, um, and they uh, effectively um, modified the, uh, the bill, or the, uh, the project of law at the time, the uh, draft, and, and, and for me it was a, a, a yeah, it was, a, was a, a, a wonderful time because I was, what, 34, and, and, I, and I saw that uh, I, uh, moving to the UK and started speaking the two languages, civil law and common law, uh, was, was enabled me to, um, to effectively add to the debate and contribute, uh, and that was, uh, was a nice day. Good, thank you. Um, Swiss banking secrecy, you said at the beginning, um, was something you didn't like, but it's certainly in your DNA, which is probably why you, like myself, um, find abhorrent the automatic exchange of information known as the common reporting standard that we're seeing being implemented in all OECD countries, leaving the US aside for the time being. Um, one of the highlights of your career, you say, was to appear as an expert before the EU data protection authorities in connection with the introduction of the OECD's common reporting standard and the EU's beneficial ownership register. Tell me more about this abhorrence, what's going on, and your, your contribution to trying to put a stop to it. Well, it, it's, it's correct that as a... Swiss person, uh, banking secrecy was all around me. Uh, to say that it was in my DNA, I, I take issues with that, but it's true that in Switzerland I learned the, uh, um, um, the asset uh, of, of, of privacy. And, and privacy, uh, I've learned at school, it's, it's a human right because it's that tension is that thing that prevents a government from potentially going from democratic to totalitarian. Because, of course, in a totalitarian state, the government has the right 
to know all about you. Then, you know, if it's an enlightened government, nothing happens, but the risks are there for a government to abuse uh, um, um, transparency of information. Um, and so when I, um, again, sort of studying the CRS, because I uh, worked in a law firm where my US colleagues spoke FATCA, and I didn't understand what they meant by FFIs, NEFIs, active, passive, I had no idea. So when I uh, um, emerged myself into this concept, I started realizing how it worked. And I also realized that, you know, I can't fault the OECD for trying to put an end to what were really egregious practices. If we remember the days of the Leven Report and, you know, uh, Birkenfeld and witness statements of bankers going to the US and other countries and putting diamonds into toothpaste in order to bring them back safely to Switzerland. That, that was really abhorrent. And so I think that the OECD was right to try to find a solution. But very often when you have an excess, you go to the other end of the spectrum and you end up in an other excess. And I think that there is, lies the problem, uh, the abhorrent nature of the CRS is not the system in itself, but it's the extreme nature of it. And I think that the uh, great problem was that nobody felt uh, entitled or justified, or perhaps because it was too complicated, simply felt able to stand up and say, but hold on a second, if you go from total secrecy to total transparency, aren't you losing something in the middle, which is privacy? And in, in continental Europe, but also the uh, UK, because of the 1998 Human Rights Act, privacy or privacy and data protection are fundamental rights. Uh, and and the, uh, UK, the EU courts, but also the UK courts now, have said, they are a fundamental principle upon which a democratic state can flourish. So as nobody was sort of uh, taking centre stage or uh, raising the issue, I, 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 I call call the European Data Protection Authorities. Uh, and uh, because I realised that they were the only ones who had actually, for a number of years, raised uh, very grave concerns which had, however, fallen on deaf ears. And when I rang them up, they said, well, actually, the OECD has been stonewalling us. Uh, they haven't provided us with any uh, insight into their work, really. There's no debate. They are going down that route, and we are unable to uh, do anything. So I said, could I come and present to you? Uh, because I believe that if you, um, uh, um, if you look at this CRS from a technical perspective, and I show you how it works in, in real life uh, with tax uh, in the mix. You, you know, you are data protection authorities, not tax lawyers. I think that if you look at how the sausage machine works, you put in the mincemeat and, you know, you turn the wheel, the sausage that comes out effectively will cement uh, your, uh, will confirm and actually amplify and, and cement your concern. And, 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 and so that's, that's what happened. Uh, and and uh, so I went there in uh, uh, Strasbourg first, uh, the Council of Europe, and then the European uh, Union in uh, uh, Brussels, uh, May and September, May and I believe September 2016. Uh, then a chap from the OECD was called in to testify in October, 
and I'm not privy to um, uh, that uh, hearing, but uh, judging from a letter that the uh, European Data Protection Authorities issued just 20 days before the CRS became a reality, I believe that uh, my intervention helped uh, convince the uh, European Data Protection Authorities that, uh, you know, convince them of the gravity of the situation. So in uh, just before the CRS came into um, force, the um, European Data Protection Authority uh, issued a letter addressed to the European Union and to the OECD, uh, reminding them of the grave uh, concerns they had in relation to the data protection and human rights implications of the CRS, reminding uh, of the uh, great number of hacking incidents that were filling the papers, the headlines in those days, and also reminding the uh, OECD and the uh, European uh, Commission of the uh, uh, nascent um, case law, jurisprudence of the European Court of Justice in data protection following the uh, revelation by Edward Snowden. Um, and that was quite good. Thank you, Filippo. Um, you, you're not someone that holds back, um, and I do want to uh, bring attention and draw attention to the crowdfunding that you are now uh, engaged in for a case called Jenny. Um, can you tell us a, bit, a little, little bit about this case and, and how people can help contribute to it? Yeah, Jenny um, uh, is the uh, sort of the US side of the CRS. Uh, it, it, it concerns FATCA and, and, and FATCA was effectively uh, uh, the first measure of transparency uh, which was then copied by uh, the OECD. Uh, um, and Jenny is a US-born uh, British citizen. She naturalized. Uh, she lives in England, had been living in England for uh, 20 years. Um, she actually moved to England pretty much uh, at the same time I moved here. Uh, she has an ordinary job uh, as a result of which she earns an ordinary salary. And under US law, effectively to encourage Americans to live abroad, uh, under US law, if you earn less than currently $104,000 a year, then you pay no US tax. And if one looks at, which I did, if one looks at the statistics of HMRC, there are less than 10% of people in the UK, including Americans, but not only, who earn the equivalent of $104,000 or more. So effectively, if we accept that the makeup of the Americans living in the UK reflect the general makeup of the population, less than 10% of Americans living here owe any tax to the US. But nevertheless, their data gets harvested in a, in a bulk way and sent over to the IRS via HMRC. And so uh, Jenny uh, was incensed um, um, uh, because she Find out about FATCA when the bank told her, you know, you might be evading tax, and she said, "What?" Uh, and uh, um, and so she said, "Can you help?" Uh, and I said, "Absolutely." Now, one of the problems uh, you, you mentioned uh, crowdfunding of litigating in the UK uh, is that, <clears throat> um, uh, and that's philosophically different from the continent. On the in the continent, the idea is that there must be access to justice. And in order to keep access to justice as open as possible, 
uh, if you go to court, the fees that you have to pay to the court system and to the other side are relatively limited. Very often are set by tariff. In the UK, the whole procedural system is designed to prevent, stop people from engulfing the court system. And so the fees are very high. Uh, you've got adverse party costs, meaning that you have to pay the costs of the other side if you lose. And so if uh, Jenny um, uh, would take on HMRC on her own, she would uh, risk potentially you know, having to pay whatever costs uh, HMRC and HM Treasury might bear. And so uh, we had the idea of doing crowdfunding. That was a first uh, for my firm. Uh, so I went to management and said, could we do this? And this is, uh, um, remember, the firm that took on the government uh, on the Brexit um, uh, deal um, twice, um, which was um, not something that everyone loved, but you know there was a point Miller. of principle, the Miller case, yeah. And so my firm said, look, we never did it, but you know you have a point of law, uh, which is very important, the point of principle of relationship between the state and the individual. Go ahead. So if one googles um, uh, FATCA and Crowd Justice, uh, which is a, a, a regulated platform. One can effectively donate uh, whatever they want anonymously, because neither Jenny nor I know, uh, to Jenny's, to support Jenny's claim. And so far, Jenny has raised uh, approximately £75,000, which uh, it's not uh, sufficient to go to full litigation, but it shows that Jenny's concerns are shared by a, uh, you know, by a wider um, uh, population. And, and I think that's, again, quite uh, remarkable. Philippe, there's lots of things I want to continue talking to you about, but I just want to finish up if, quite quickly, if I may, on another high um, of your career, which is that you are a visiting professor at King's College London. Do you find teaching also helps you to learn? Uh, it, when one stops learning, I think one should retire. Um, I... I, I... I, there isn't a day where I go to work and understand that uh, I'm, I know less than, uh, than I should know. And so, yes, of course, teaching actually shows how much you have to learn because you need to make things simple. And I think that, um, like this podcast, uh, you know, it, it, it teaches uh, uh, people about issues that very often are obfuscated by legal advice, by statutory terminology. And, and so I, I, I welcome uh, um, uh, talking and teaching and learning uh, because that's what uh, you know, we need to keep doing. Uh, and I keep learning from my clients. I keep learning uh, by talking to you know, people like you about uh, the issues that uh, concern us. And I, and I keep learning from my students, because the makeup of the class uh, changes every year. Uh, it used to be a very European, uh, Europe-centric class. And this year, uh, two-thirds of my students are Chinese. Uh, and so to explain trusts and equity and the rest of it, forced airship to a Chinese audience, it requires humility and requires also a lot of listening power. You need to listen to what their problems are. And that's fascinating. Filippo, it has been fascinating to talk to you and a great privilege. Um, I wish you so much success with, with Jenny 
And anyone who's listening to this podcast, please have a look at um, the crowdfunding and please make a donation so that we can start establishing the rights, which are rights for the rich and the rights of the poor as well. Thank you very much, Filippo. Thank you.